Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniel. Um, I'm a member of the church family here, and it's very good to be with you. The Bishop of Gloucester was in the news a couple of days ago saying that she'd noticed the Easter eggs were on sale a little bit earlier, and she was wondering that Easter seemed to be coming earlier and earlier. And you might be forgiven for thinking that maybe we at St Paul's have fallen to a similar trend, because you've just gone out of that post-Christmas haze where you're not really sure what day it is. You start getting back into the rhythm, first Sunday, back in church, New Year, bam, Palm Sunday. Surprise! <laughs> but we're actually continuing our series um, where we've been working through Luke, and this brings us to Palm Sunday, but we've got another two or three months before we hit Easter Day itself, which means that what we have here is an extended approach, um, extended Holy Week, essentially, and an opportunity to spend a little bit more time in these few days before Jesus' death. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on what we might expect of Jesus. So let's pray as we start. Lord God, we pray that as I speak and as we listen, would you be in the midst of us? Would your spirit be among us? And would you help us to hear what you have to say for us this evening? Amen. Amen. So one of the interesting things about a lot of these passages um, when we follow Jesus is he often acts in very unexpected ways. He often confounds expectations. Um, that may have been the case for you this evening when you came in not expecting to be at Easter. Um, you may not be expecting this talk to cover Gandalf, Van Gogh and Church Fathers, but you may well be surprised on that one as well. But Jesus, in the way that he acted, the things that he said and did, often confounded people's expectations. And we can see a lot of that in this passage as we go through it. The very first thing is the way that Jesus acquires his donkey. In Luke 19, verse 29, he says, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Now this is a rather unexpected call. If I were to ask some of you to go out onto the street, go and find a Range Rover, go up to it, jimmy it open, and if the owners come out of the house and look at you and say, what are you doing? You simply say, the Lord needs it. That might be an unusual thing. Just to clarify, I am not asking anyone at the end of the service to go out and break into a Range Rover and steal it, or indeed to steal any car from... Oh, just don't steal anything. I think it's on the walls at the back there. Don't, don't steal anything. So, um, yeah, if you take nothing else away from the... Well, if you take nothing else, you might take something. Anyway, there's a, there's a theft stroke in there that I haven't made. Um, the important thing here is that, although this is a really unusual thing to be asked, the disciples do it, and weirdly enough, it works. The disciples go to this cult, and they take the donkey. The owners say, what are you doing? They say, the Lord needs it. And next thing we know, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. We get a sense that even though the disciples may have been a bit surprised at this, the owners of the donkey certainly may well have been surprised by this, Jesus wasn't. Jesus knew in this village that they were coming up to that there would be a donkey there. They knew where it would be. He knew that it had never been written. He knew that he could ask people to go and take it and that they would let him. We see that Jesus here is fully in control of the situation. And the next thing that happens with this donkey is that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And we see this in verse 37 and 38 of our passage, which says this, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We see here a celebration of the disciples as Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. And the language and the experiences that they're having here are very much of the arrival of a king. They declare it themselves in these words from the Psalms, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they would also have known Jesus coming in on the donkey would have reminded them of this passage from Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is one of the many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what they're celebrating here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, as he's been traveling through several chapters of Luke towards Jerusalem, At the point when he finally reaches it, his disciples are there celebrating the arrival of their king, their Messiah. And this is what surprises and astonishes the Pharisees, who, in verse 39, tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Their expectation, as you can see from the fact that they refer to Jesus here just as teacher, is that they're not expecting Jesus to be a Messiah, they're just expecting him to be a teacher. And their expectation, as Jesus comes in, and is hearing all these disciples, they were expecting Jesus to go and to rebuke his disciples. When they're not, they ask him to do that. And instead, his response again is very unexpected. He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In a way, I wish that they had stayed quiet, because I think that would have been quite a sight to see. And there's, there's this instinct here, this idea that what's happening here is not just people going from one place to another. There's a sense here that what Jesus is doing here is a culmination of creation, that's something that all of creation is crying out to happen. So we have the disciples celebrating the arrival of the king, the Pharisees being concerned about the arrival, and how is Jesus acting on his coronation walk? It's again, it's a surprising action. In verse 41 and 32, we see him weeping. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Again, we see that Jesus knows exactly what's happening in this situation. He knows that when he's going into Jerusalem, he will not be received. The disciples are expecting a king to come in, a king in the line of David or Solomon, someone to come in as a military ruler, perhaps, or a mighty leader who would maybe help to drive out the Romans from the land that they find themselves in. Instead, the king that they are celebrating in just a few days' time will be on the cross. And yet this king, although he is unexpected, is doing far more than anyone is expecting of him here. Jesus' death on the cross is, in many ways, the culminating act of creation And through Jesus' death on the cross, he achieves far more than anyone could have expected of him. Instead of just being a king of Jerusalem, he is crowned king of the world, of all of humanity. Instead of living for just a few decades and an earthly lifetime, Jesus is coming in to rule over all humanity forever. And rather than just winning a victory over the Romans, he's winning a victory over death itself. All this is to say is that throughout this passage and throughout, indeed, all of the Gospels, Jesus' actions are often intended to surprise us and to challenge us. 
And this can be quite difficult for us in this day and age, particularly when we have all of the Gospels in front of us. We have the Bible, we have the book that God intended us to have, and we're not going to get any more of it. We're not going to get a fifth Gospel. Um, we're not going to get any more parts of it. And in some ways, then, we can get a bit complacent in this knowledge. We can lose some of the surprise through familiarity with these stories, through familiarity with everything that's happening. We can look at the disciples who are receiving Jesus and not quite recognizing what he's doing, and we can look on them somewhat scornfully. We can say, oh, silly disciples, can't believe they didn't understand it. If I was there, if I'd been there, I'd have got it. I wouldn't have missed it. Friends, I don't think you would have done. I think it's very dangerous territory when we find ourselves in a situation where we think that we know what Jesus will say or what Jesus will do. And we've got an example of that. I'm going to have a question for you here. Um, and I'm going to ask you, what do you think Jesus would say in response to this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this sounds like a good and sensible question to ask of Jesus. Um, and it's a good question to wonder what Jesus would answer in this situation. And in fact, those of you with memories that stretch back a couple of months um, would remember that actually when we were talking about this in Luke 18, someone did indeed go to Jesus and ask him exactly this question, asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man was a rich young ruler. Jesus asked him, um, have you kept all of these commands? He said, yes, since I was a boy. And he says, very well, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then the man goes away sad because he is rich. So there's our answer, right? We know if we ask Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would say, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Easy, next one. Except that Jesus wasn't asked this question just once. In fact, he's probably asked this several times throughout uh, his ministry. But in fact, in Luke's gospel, it's recorded another time when he's asked this exact same question, which is in Luke 10, where someone again comes to him. This time it's a teacher of the law and asks him exactly the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he got the same answer, right? Leading question. No, he didn't. The teacher of the law comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him what he knows the law to say. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and with all your strength and to love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. And this goes on then to have a conversation about who is his neighbor, which leads in to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we've got the same question and yet Jesus has answered it differently. And in both cases, I think this is at least in part because of the people asking the question. The first question we looked at was asked by a rich young ruler who was trying to justify himself through his actions. And Jesus cuts right to the heart of what this man is thinking and doing by saying that he needs to give up his wealth and his money. And this is what takes him to go away and be sad because he realizes in that moment with Jesus' question that not only does he want eternal life, but he also wants his money. And if he had to give up one to get the other, he would be sad. The teacher of the law, on the other hand, seems to be very legalistic, legalistic, very precise about the things that he wants to do. And this causes Jesus to go into this parable about the Good Samaritan, leading him to broaden his idea of what it means to be a neighbor. And again, in both of these situations, we can miss some of the context. We can miss some of the surprise in Jesus's answers particularly in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we are so familiar with this concept that the Good Samaritan has entered our parlance, and indeed there is a charity just called the Samaritans, which is dedicated to helping people. 
in our modern society, we lose some of the context where a Samaritan doing a good thing for people would have been really shocking to the group that he was talking to. And so what we might find, I think, is that if we were to ask Jesus this question, I suspect that in the same as if we were to ask Jesus any question, we couldn't confidently say what Jesus would say to us. I think we know that the answer would be surprising, but it would also be warm and gentle and loving and caring, but it would cut right to the heart of what we needed to know. And I think this tells us something about the person of Jesus. In The Lord of the Rings, uh, the wizard Gandalf says this about the hobbits. He says, hobbits really are amazing creatures, as I've said before. You can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years, they can still surprise you. And I think there's an element of this in the way that we can react to Jesus as well. I don't want us to go so far the other way and think that we can never know anything about Jesus. We can be confident in a lot of the things. We've said a lot of them in the creed um, that we said just before this. And there are lots of things that we can know about Jesus. We can be confident in his death and resurrection. We can be confident in the salvation that he has brought us to free us from our sins. And we can learn this in a lot less than a month. We can, read down, we can sit down and read any gospel and that will tell us so much about the person of Jesus. And if you've never done that, I'd encourage you to do that. But for those of us who have been Christians for a while longer, getting this sense of surprise from Jesus can be harder. The familiarity with the stories can mean that we don't get surprised in quite the same way, which can lead us to ask the question, how can we allow Jesus to surprise us today? And I want to suggest three things that we could do to allow Jesus to surprise us. And the first one is to insert ourselves into the stories that Jesus tells. And this can feel a little weird. This can sometimes feel almost a little sacrilegious. Um, here's this story. Here's an event that happened in history. I wasn't there. Why, why should I be putting myself in the story? That can feel a little weird. But in fact, this is partly a cultural thing. Um, particularly in Jewish culture, history was far more than just remembering from a distance what had happened. There was an aspect of reliving this, of reliving the events that happened, placing yourself within the story to find out what was happening there. A lot of the New Testament, which is written in Greek, particularly the Gospels, are written in present tense, a lot of them. It doesn't say Jesus went to Jerusalem. It says Jesus is going to Jerusalem to allow you to put yourself into the moment. Um, even today, when we do communion at church, we relive the Last Supper. We take the bread and the wine to remind ourselves of the bread and the wine that Jesus had before he died. And this is something that's happened across the centuries as well. Just take this painting uh, here from Van Gogh, The Raising of Lazarus. Um, this is a painting that depicts, no surprises here, The Raising of Lazarus. Um, and if you can see there on the left, um, there is a figure there who looks remarkably like Van Gogh. And this is because it's Van Gogh, um, one of the people in history who looked the most like Van Gogh of anyone. Um, true fact. Um, Van Gogh often painted himself into his paintings, but it's particularly prescient here, where he's placing himself in the position of Lazarus. He's thinking about what it would have been like for him to be Lazarus in this situation. And we can do this with the stories that we hear and with the readings that we have. We've thought about it a little bit already this evening. We thought about what it would have been like to be the people who owned the donkey, to have their donkey taken from them. We thought about the Pharisees. We thought about the disciples. And this can be a really useful thing for us to do, to place ourselves into the scene. 
And one of the things that this does is this stops us rushing ahead. It stops us knowing the end of the story. We can imagine what it's like to be that person in that place, to be anticipating what Jesus is about to say. And then when Jesus says the things that he says, which are often shocking and provocative and not what one would expect, we can get a little bit more of the sense of what that would have been like. We can see things from their perspective. And to continue this thought, the second thing that I think we can do to allow Jesus to surprise us is to hear from different perspectives. And this is particularly important because each of us as people and as a culture as a whole, we have our own blind spots and we have our own biases. Even when we come to the Bible, which is God's inspired word, we can find ourselves inadvertently layering on our own thoughts and feelings and expectations on top of it and end up emphasizing certain things, ignoring other bits, and finding ourselves perhaps inadvertently distorting slightly what's written there. And that's a really difficult thing for us to get past because we do it subconsciously. If you imagine this church, for instance, this church has these wonderful pillars um, all around, which are really great, but wherever you sit in the church, the pillar is going to obscure some view of the church. Um, They've managed to remove all the seats that obscure you from seeing me, for which I can only apologize. But from wherever you're sitting, there will be bits of the church you won't be able to see. You might be able to see the side chapel or some of the windows. Um, all of you are facing this way, so you won't be able to see the back unless you look, um, which you don't have to. There's nothing particularly exciting going on at the back. Um, hello, people at the back. Apologies for describing you as not exciting. Um, that wasn't in my notes. That's, why, um, that's what happens when I ignore my notes. But the thing is that in order to get a full and accurate view of the whole of the church, you can't just look at it from one viewpoint. Every viewpoint has its own blind spots, but the more viewpoints you look at it from, the more things you'll pick up and the more things you'll realize that you missed when you were looking at it from other places. And this is one of the reasons why things like diversity are so important, hearing from different viewpoints, people from different racial or cultural backgrounds, people from different generations, people from different cultures. All these give us an opportunity to understand things that we wouldn't have seen from our own culture. And again, not to say that those cultures don't have their own blind spots, but their blind spots will be different to ours. And the things that come naturally to them may be things that really surprise us. One of the most interesting books I've read recently is a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, which is a really, really interesting read. It's written by these authors who've spent time in various different Eastern cultures or Middle Eastern cultures and they've written this book which talks about so many of the things that we in the West take for granted and maybe read in to the Bible or biblical stories that really just aren't there at all. It's a really interesting opportunity to reflect on views from different cultures. Or you can read books written from different cultures themselves. And again, just the way that they approach things, the things that they focus on, the things that they don't focus on, can give us really real good information about things that maybe may have always been in the Gospels, or always been in the Bible, but that we've missed. Likewise, one of the things that I think we as a culture perhaps have lost a little bit of is respect for things that came before. And part of that comes because we as a culture are very scientifically literate. And in science and in technology, the progress of arrow, the arrow of progress is ever forward. The science and technology that we have today is better than technology we had 20 years ago, which is better than technology that was there 20 years before that, and so on and so forth. And if we're not careful, we can find this worldview sort of tipping over into the way that we treat other things, because that's true in science and technology, but it's not true in other areas. It's not true in humanities, arts and, arts and culture, literature, music, all these kind of things. It's not necessarily true that new is better here. And it's also not the case for theology. 
this is another opportunity we can do to engage with people from different cultures. That culture can be people from several hundred years ago. And while it's easier for us to talk with people from different generations or from different racial or cultural backgrounds, it's harder for us to talk to people from several hundred years ago. But this is where books are a wonderful thing because many of these people who are no longer with us have still written down their thoughts and there are opportunities for us to learn from people from different cultures from the past. There's a few examples here uh, on the next slide. In the top left, we've got C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors. Uh, he writes very accessibly about really complicated theological topics, um, particularly Mere Christianity is a wonderful book. Um, Screwtape Letters is also a great book for just reflecting on looking at things from a really different perspective. In top right, we've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who really demonstrated both in his writings and in his works what it meant to follow Jesus in a culture that was really difficult, his being Nazi Germany. Uh, in the bottom left, we've got Brother, Brother Lawrence, who lived in the 1600s, um, and just after his death, a little book was written of some of his sayings called The Practice of the Presence of God, which is a marvelous little read. It's a very simplistic book, very simple to understand, but his whole theology was very simple and yet led to a life of deep contentment. And in the bottom right, we have Augustine, um, whose book Confessions is an excellent read, um, as well as many other of the early church fathers' works, going back to the very, very early days of the church. And there'll be lots of other people. I'm sure you'll have your own uh, favorite authors um, that maybe you could share with, uh, with each other afterwards. But this, again, gives us an opportunity to learn from the past and to learn from other people. And again, the perspectives that they have may well enlighten something that, even in a story we've read a hundred times, we'd completely missed. This helps us notice new things or highlight our blind spots. And the best chance we have of seeing the Jesus at the very center and heart of the gospel and of the Bible is by looking at it from as many different perspectives as possible, removing as many of the barriers we may have put in our own way, and giving us the opportunity to see the real Jesus at the heart of this. Which leads me to my third point, my final point, which is the third way we can allow Jesus to surprise us, is to meet with him ourselves. One of the things you may have noticed from the start of our reading is when Jesus requires this donkey, he knows exactly where this donkey is. So he could very easily have gone and got hit himself. He equally probably could have clicked his fingers and a donkey made out of stones could have risen out of the ground and gone singing into Jerusalem for him. Uh, he didn't choose to do that, although again, would have loved that to have happened. But instead, what he chose to do was he chose to use his disciples in the course of fulfilling this prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. He used his disciples to go and fetch the donkey. And so many of the other things that happen in the Gospels happen because Jesus sends his disciples to go and do things. And the same is true of us today. Jesus wants to use each one of us. He wants to meet with each one of us today. In Ephesians, it tells us that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And every one of us has the opportunity right now to engage with Jesus in prayer, to come to him and to ask him for his help, to ask him for his guidance, and to listen and to hear what he has to say for us. So that's what we're going to do now for a few minutes. So uh, if you'd like to stand, if you're able to, uh, if the band can maybe come back ready for our final song. And we'll spend a few minutes just listening to Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit, asking him to speak to us and seeing what he has to say for us. It might be something new, it might be something very familiar that we just need to be reminded of. Whatever it may be, let's take this time to listen to Jesus.
So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus' ministry on earth. We thank you for his life, and we thank you for his death, saving us from our sins and bringing us into new relationship with you. We pray now that for those of us for whom this is very new, would you reveal something of yourself to us this evening? Would you speak to us through um, a word or a picture or a conversation or whatever it may be? Would you reveal something of yourself to us and help us to know more of you here? And for those of us here who have known you for a while, um, maybe particularly those of us who feel like our rhythm and our routine with you maybe is getting stale or where we feel like we've seen all there is to see, would you show us something new of what you have for us? Would you reveal something that we haven't seen before? Would you remind us of something different about you that we need to see? Would you show us more of your love for us, more of your care for us, and more of what you want us to do? So let's just leave a minute of silence here to listen to God and hear what he has to say for us. Father, we pray that whatever it is that you have been speaking to us, we pray that you would help us to receive it, you would help us to hear what you have to say to us, and you would help us to be able to take it out into the world. Amen. If God is saying things to you, if you are still in that moment, please do continue having that conversation. Um, for, for the rest of us, um, we're going to be singing our final song now. Um, this is a reminder for us that we can build our lives on all that Jesus has, and all that Jesus has done.